Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in because we have got a lot to cram in in our time together. If it's okay with all of you, I'll be looking at when governments fall, contextualising Sunak's mountainous problems. Um, When I say problems, I don't mean they've appeared from nowhere. Um, There is a context to those mountainous problems. But it is also interesting, when the spell breaks for a governing party. Governments are often in trouble, bewildered, confused, divided, uh, making a mess of things, but sometimes they still cast a spell that creates a sense of purpose and dynamism. But when that spell breaks, it's over. Um, And I'll be reflecting on that and looking at the significance or insignificance of shadow cabinet reshuffles in the light of Keir Starmer's changes. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of things. And then, of course, a return to your brilliant questions, uh, some really interesting questions coming up and points um, that will, I think, invite further reflection in the weeks to come, weeks and months to come. We're in a new political year where... Yeah, and it's one that will lead one way or another towards a general election. Before all of that, a few notices. Uh, I've got a new book out this month. It's called Turning Points, Crisis and Change in Modern Britain from 1945 to Liz Truss. And of course, it's available for pre-order now, wherever you order your books from. I'll be reflecting more on the kind of themes in the book and the lessons of which there are quite a few which apply urgently to now because we could be on the edge of a turning point, couldn't we? Uh, A change of governing party, but that in itself is not necessarily a turning point. It depends what that new governing party does. But what I thought I'd do now, just for a bit of fun, is to tell you the turning points that I identified and explore. Uh, 1945, that Labour government, the Suez Crisis, uh, the 1960s social reforms instigated by Roy Jenkins, but with others playing a key part in it, uh, the quadrupling of oil in 1973, the oil price, that hit the UK with calamitous consequences. Uh, it was aimed, actually, at the US, but they were more robust. As ever, the UK crumbled, and the 1970s dramas were shaped by it. The 79, the counter-revolution to 1945. 1997, in the sense that after 18 years of one-party rule, there was a change of government, um, and many profound changes arose from it, though not as deep as 45 or 79. Brexit, the 2008 financial crash, the pandemic, and Liz Truss, because in that Liz Truss era, which incidentally took place a month ago, we had the starkest of turning points with the quasi-quarteng budget, followed quickly afterwards by Jeremy Hunt's statement reversing virtually all of that budget, a dramatic U-turn. But as I explore in that chapter a complex one, nothing was quite what it seemed or seems in that there were plenty of connections between Liz Truss and quasi-quarteng and David Cameron and George Osborne and Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak. It's not quite the break it seemed to be. Anyway, I'll be reflecting on some of the many themes of that book. I hope you 
pre-order it and um, we can explore some of the themes together. Uh, I'm live at King's Place on September the 13th for the start of the political year special. And uh, yeah, what a lot to explore. Party conferences looming, defining party conferences, the speeches from Sunak, Starmer, and let's not forget Ed Davey, the SNP, uh, by-elections of pivotal importance. Some by-elections don't matter, some do. The ones coming up this autumn do. I think the one in Rutherglen in Scotland is arguably the most significant by-election for decades, 40-odd years or so. And the widening context, the sense of nothing working, it hasn't happened again by chance. Um, so, yeah, and I'll be launching the new book there, even though it's not formally published until a few days after that. So it will be a packed night full of fun. And you can get your tickets from the King's Place website or on the blurb for this podcast. Do come along. We're going to delve deep that night. And finally, for Patreon subscribers, thank you for subscribing. Uh, your next series of bonus podcasts will be starting. And it's an idea put forward by one of our cooperatives, Stuart Grant, one of the key barometer figures in our cooperative, voted Tory in 2019, disillusioned with the Tories, might vote Labour, but hasn't got there yet. Um, anyway, that's Stuart, a, a barometer figure. But he came up with this idea of political rivalries as a theme for the bonus podcast and um, came up with some good ones, which I'm going to explore. Uh, Gladstone and Disraeli, Lloyd George and Asquith, Churchill and Attlee, although that one is quite complicated, the Churchill-Attlee one. Gateskill and Bevan, Healy and Ben, Heath and Thatcher, Blair and Brown, Miliband and Miliband, Cameron and Johnson. Bliss to delve deep and look at the wider uh, lessons. So, yeah, thank you, Stuart. I'm going to follow it. Um, so that will be uh, one of the bonus podcasts for that series will be out um, in the next week or so. Anyway, if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to reflect, as I said at the beginning, on when governments fall. There was a vivid moment um, in the uh, 1990s when it was clear, well, it was very clear really from the fall of the exchange rate mechanism when Britain fell out of the exchange rate mechanism in September 1992, that John Major would struggle again to regain an authority which he should have had. He won a remarkable election victory just a few months earlier, in April 1992. But the spell of a commanding new figure with a sense of where to take his party and his country, which was distinct and different from Thatcher's in some respects, not all, was gone with the chaos of the exchange rate mechanism. But the picture wasn't clear of dysfunctionality uh, until kind of there was a sense then that nothing bloody worked. You know, people say, oh, 1997 was a golden inheritance for Labour because the economy was growing. But public services were in a dire state, not as bad as they are now, but pretty bad. And I think the spell was completely broken when there was a weekend where everything went wrong. The Grand National didn't start. A hotel was crumbling into the sea at Scarborough. And the then Labour leader, John Smith, kind of mocked that uh, 
picture by saying this is a country where horse races don't start, where hotels are falling into the sea, and the sense of a government not being in control of anything and being unable to turn to the government for guidance and help is when a spell breaks. Uh, And we've got it now. And in a way, the crisis over school buildings is the perfect emblematic example because it spans this 13-year period. It recasts the focus again on that early phase when Cameron and Osborne rushed in with a programme of cuts, um, the so-called austerity programme, whilst fooling parts of the BBC, parts of The Guardian, parts of The Independent, that they were centrist, modernising centrists, when they were returning inappropriately to the Thatcherism of the 1980s, but with a much tougher version of it. She never cut spending in real terms. And, of course, one of the first things to go was the school building programme, certainly on the scale envisaged by the outgoing Labour government. And isn't it interesting, there's a mythology around... 2010, and that silly note uh, Liam Byrne wrote about there being no money left. Well, post the financial crash, there was money that included a necessary extensive school building programme. But in they came, those ministers in 2010, and they were told their reward for um, cutting fast uh, would be kind of prominent roles on various economic cabinet committees and so on. And off they all went to cut, 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 and the consequences are still being played out. But it's really interesting. And again, defining uh, that uh, on the Today programme on Monday morning, we had a top official from the Department of Education saying they made it absolutely clear to the Treasury that a rebuilding programme of some ambition was essential and unavoidable. Uh, And instead, what happened, Rishi Sunak, as Chancellor, cut the proposed number of rebuilding projects for schools by half. And this is a reminder of uh, Sunak's position. I read on a daily basis, oh, Rishi Sunak, he's a technocrat. He's not. He is self-described fiscal conservative, where his instinct is to assume that public spending demands from other departments are a consequence of lazy inefficiencies and um, outrageous bidding in a public spending round. By the way, at one with Treasury orthodoxy in Britain, where the UK Treasury tends to view public spending as a waste, and when you have a chancellor similarly inclined, it's very hard to get anything done at all. So there we have Sunak actually... Uh, revealed as one of the contributing factors to the fact that some kids now can't go back to school in a country where you're not sure whether you're going to be able to catch a train and all the other things. You know, you can't get served quickly at a bar because of all the labour shortages. Um, This sense that nothing bloody works. And that's when the spell breaks, especially with Conservative governments, um, It's much easier for them to cast a spell for longer because of the broadly sympathetic media. Although I think some of the papers who gave Boris Johnson such an easy time are less inclined to do so with Sunak, even though 
He is to the right of Boris Johnson as far as you can place Johnson's wayward character anywhere on the political spectrum and therefore closer to Britain's right-wing newspapers. But um, it was a bit like with Major after Thatcher. Major was to the left of Thatcher, but the newspapers never really forgave him for not being Thatcher. Um, Sunak is not getting as soft a press as he might have done, although it's not anywhere near suggesting that those newspapers will switch to Labour as they did in 1997. So, yeah, the spell is broken and people can see through the confused posturing of Sunak and his exhausted, bewildered government and uh, education secretary wholly out of her depth and um, on and on it goes. But it is interesting, this casting of a spell and when the spell breaks and said it did for major by 1993 and he was gone in 1997 because when for example new labor took over and i think um Kistama, as we've discussed many times is far too influenced by tony blair and peter mandelson and that era um and 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 has people working with him who also worked with Blair and have romanticised that period. What's really interesting is that there was one hell of a spell cast over the electorate and the media post the 97 victory. And if you read the columns and the analysis at the time, you get this sense of a great government working as one with a defining sense of purpose. But actually behind the scenes, it was very different. I was just thinking, you know, there was chaos on many different fronts, actually, in the, the that early phase of a government who got into power on the most incremental and actually rather vague programme in some respects. I mean, they did brilliantly in pulling off devolution that had eluded other governments and, you know, the minimum wage and a lot of important changes implemented with the minimum of fuss when all hell could have broken loose. But at the same time, while it was being hailed for its collective sense of purpose, there was chaos over whether Britain should join the single currency. There was absolute chaos over welfare reform, where Harriet Harman was made Social uh, Security Secretary and Frank Field as her uh, all-important junior minister who Blair and Brown revered without realising that Field's ideas involved spending additional money at first. And when they realised, there was chaos. And it's what the danger of hailing reform without knowing what it is precisely you mean by that ubiquitous, imprecise term. Um, and I can give endless other examples, people running around unclear of where they were going, electoral reform. There was Roy Jenkins' commission to do a paper, which, by the way, is still there, a very readable set of propositions for electoral reform. Um, but, you know, John Prescott not wanting it, Tony Blair not really wanting it. There were all kinds of things where actually there was not this great, clear sense of direction and purpose, but a spell was cast, um, big majority, the economy was growing, uh, Blair was mesmerising, Brown did the Bank of England independence and had his first budget ready like Geoffrey Howe in 79. So th the thing was cast really until, I guess, well, Iraq, the failure of Gordon Brown to manage the speculation about a possible early election in the autumn of 2007 kind of 
did for him. And then, of course, we had the global crash, although Brown responded magnificently to that challenge. Um, indeed, 2010, the more I look at that election, the more bizarre it was uh, in, in its distorted kind of way it was seen, you know, with uh, Brown portrayed as this useless, out-of-his-depth prime minister and Cameron as this kind of great magisterial reformer with his big society about to change Britain, a, a term he dropped almost immediately after coming into number 10. Anyway, there we go. Um, but the spell has now broken, and it breaks when there is this sense that you turn to the government and you just see chaos. And as I say, the school classroom thing is a disaster for them at the start of a new political year when Sunak wants to project his leadership in a fresh way um, with the party conference looming, and they've got this, and him in the frame. Uh, because he is an ideological figure. He's not a technocrat. He's an ideologue out of step with the times. Um, the times have much more demands on a modern state um, in, in a way that uh, Labour don't dare to reflect publicly either for reasons which we can explore on another occasion. But once the spell is broken, it cannot be remade. Uh, however hard they try now, and it's still not entirely clear, the pace at which they will deal with these crumbling school buildings. Why everything in Britain is done on the cheap and then the consequence is not addressed until the building is about to collapse is an interesting theme in itself. Um, but I don't think there will be space for Sunak to cast a spell there never has been for reasons which I'll be exploring at King's Place on September the 13th. Um, but now it's narrowed because of chickens coming home to roost, that great political cliche which has powerful potency. Um, so uh, space indeed for Labour and its uh, reshuffled shadow cabinet. What's always interesting about these things is not usually the personalities who are moved around, um, but the policy implications. So with uh, Angela Rayner, now in charge of the so-called levelling up agenda and uh, you know local government and all the rest of it, she faces the conundrum that her predecessor, Lisa Nandy, faced, which is Keir Starmer began the year uh, saying the big theme would be giving control back, take back control. He cleverly, in my view, used that phrase, famous in the Brexit referendum, um, to explain what he described as a historic transfer of power. Now, most leaders of the opposition hail transfers of power closer to the people, uh, because who's against power to the people? And there aren't public spending implications, which um, scare uh, Labour leadership's especially. But how do you do it? And already you can see the tensions uh, because, you know, for example, Labour's plans for house building will be imposed irrespective, they claim, of local concerns in certain places um, as an engine of growth. Um, Rachel Reeves will want to keep an eye on every halfpenny being spent because such is the nature of her fiscal rules 
and her tendency to rule out any possible tax rises, that every halfpenny will have to be spent well for it to have any impact on reviving these public services. But who decides whether the money is being spent well? Uh, for example, the Mayor of London, uh, or the Mayor of Manchester, Greater Manchester, uh, or the Treasury. And the answer usually when a party forms a government is the Treasury. And so now Angela Rayner will have to navigate these uh, tensions. And um, they will not be resolved in opposition, but in government they will be tested to the full. And it's not, incidentally, an easy dilemma to fully address because central government does get the blame when things go wrong and do take responsibility for increases in public spending wherever it is. Um, but what if they hand over complete control of that to others? And there is a strong argument for doing that. But then if the money is seen to be misspent, what do they do? Uh, you know, these are endless kind of tensions in a country which has had, certainly since the 80s, weak local government, revived significantly with the mayors in Greater Manchester, London and Liverpool and so on. So, so you know, it's that really. I'm very aware of... Uh, how you can over-interpret shadow cabinet reshuffles, because one of the themes I'm going to do for the podcast is um, uh, look back at interviews I did with all the key players in New Labour in the build-up to 1997. Uh, I was political editor of The New Statesman. I interviewed the lot from Tony Blair and Gordon Brown to everybody. And some of them were put in an anthology, which we gave out during the general election of 97. Includes Claire Short, Tony Blair, Paddy Ashdown, who, of course, was heavily involved as leader of the Lib Dems, Peter Mandelson, many others. Anyway, I'm going to look at them and compare then and now for some podcast specials uh, nearer the election. Uh, but one of them was with the Shadow Health Secretary, who had been reshuffled in the pre-election Shadow Cabinet reshuffle. Can any of you remember who that person was? Dun, 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 dun. Wait a few seconds. Well, it was Chris Smith uh, who was moved from shadow social security to shadow health. And I'll look at the interview at some point. It's really interesting because he too was juggling with this thing of a fear of saying anything that would cost money, a vague commitment to the private sector, but not fully worked out. But the other significant thing is Chris Smith was never health secretary. It was, of course, the first health secretary was Frank Dobson, and he was moved to culture. But there he was. It was seen as a very big thing at the time. Harriet Harman was moved in at shadow social security, more amenable, as they saw it, Blair and Brown, to a reform, in inverted commas, of welfare, although they didn't know what reform meant. And Chris Smith was put to health, and he was never health secretary. So it's not really the individuals, although obviously Angela Rayne is going to be a key figure as an elected deputy leader and therefore elected deputy prime minister if they win. Um, and she's going to be a very interesting figure, I think, in the next government. But it's how she navigates that dilemma. Is it going to be an historic shift from the centre? If so, how? And who really is in control? And... Uh, it, as I say, it's not straightforward. It's tempting. So, oh, yeah, give power back to the people, you know, but through which agency? I'm a massive fan of the mayoral system. Mayor of London, think, transformed London. 
And I could see Andy Burnham doing really significant things in Greater Manchester. Indeed, I wonder whether if the next Labour cabinet is as fearful and cautious as they are at the moment, whether actually the radicalism will come from outside the kind of Westminster thing, as it did to some extent with New Labour, with Ken Livingston's congestion charge, paying for buses, sorting out the underground and all the things that really boosted London. And that carried on with Johnson, to some extent, with bikes and all the rest of it. Andy Burnham's now doing it with buses and trams and challenging the concept of, of ownership a theme that terrifies the national Labour leadership. So, anyway, who knows, but it's Chris Smith, Shadow Health Secretary, in the pre-election Shadow Cabinet reshuffle, and he was never even Health Secretary, um, and he didn't really know what he was doing with that brief when I interviewed him. But we'll visit that another time. I think it's time now, if it's okay with all of you, for some questions. We haven't had these for a few weeks, and I've just got to dial them up here. Dial them up. I've got them in a separate place to um, uh, where I am. Here we are. Hold on. Here we go with the questions. Now, we, we begin. I've been missing Dominique Joule, our correspondent from France. And as ever, she writes in with a very interesting comparison. We're so parochial in Britain, it's very useful getting these comparisons with France. So, you know, there's there been this row over um, extending benefits for families with more than two children. And Keir Starmer said, we're not doing that. We're not changing that policy. Um, uh, other Labour leaders in other parts of the UK have said they would change it and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, in France, there's a far more interesting and confident approach. Uh, Dominica writes... Um, well, she lists some of the advantages for families with three children. Uh, I haven't got time to read them all out, but she adds, the most significant advantage for a family with three or more children, however, is that they will almost certainly be exempt from paying income tax unless the parents are extremely high earners. The above may go some way to explaining that the number of children often spotted with parents in France is often three. Given that the two-child policy in the UK is driven by welfare cuts and that the inevitable outcome is to increase child poverty, I would predict that Labour will have a job defending the decision to retain it. Uh, yeah, so in France, it's uh, a whole set of policies robustly in place. In the UK, the usual mess over whether uh, Labour can dare change it or not. I suspect they will in government, but who knows? Very interesting contrast. Um, next, uh, Charlie. Uh, uh, Charlie said, I'm a long-time listener, though first-time emailer to your excellent uh, podcast. Oh, thank you very much. One of, if not the very best there is. Thank you, Charlie. Spread the word. If we all spread the word, uh, we can double our audience who might be listening to other political podcasts which don't delve anywhere near as deep as us and have the same fun. And I'm in the same room as everyone, metaphorically speaking. Some of these other podcasts, they're not in the same room. Yeah, but I won't go into any. Anyway, um, anyway, Charlie, I often listen to the podcast whilst rowing on my rowing machine, during which time I cover great distances. So would therefore like to offer my services to the cooperative as the resident kayaker, your book, Charlie. We, we, we haven't got a kayaker. We need one. And it's you. 
He's currently in possession of a kayak, so can transport any goods produced by the cooperative, bread, Union Jack socks, um, something I fear Andy's van will be unable to do without considerable modification. Yeah, Andy, oh yeah, Charlie says we can go overseas on his kayak. Andy's van is very much, we're going to hear from Andy a bit later on. This, I feel, will open up new markets to the already thriving cooperative, although I can't guarantee great success in the EU thanks to the genius that is Lord Frost. Lord Frosty Frost. He wrote an article in the Telegraph the other day about how he worries about Britain being in decline. I thought, what chutzpah? What chutzpah? One of the key agents of decline, now so distant from his own self-inflicted chaos that he loftily notes decline. Ah. Oh. Lord Frosty Frost. My question regards honeymoon periods. Which Prime Minister, in your view, enjoyed the longest and best honeymoon period? And do you think that Starmer, if and when he wins the next general election, will enjoy much of one, considering the current mood state of the country? Uh, yeah, good question. The longest one, uh, by some distance, was Tony Blair, when he got in in 97. He was uh, head in the polls for a heck of a long time and by a huge margin in the early phase of that government. It's one of the reasons they were able to cast a spell, even though behind the scenes there was quite often turmoil. It was a massive lead and the longest. Not all prime ministers necessarily get them. Margaret Thatcher didn't get one. I mean, she won election landslides, but in between she was often unpopular and she was unpopular very quickly after the 79 election. Uh, but but it, was, it was the longest one. Now, Starmer needs a honeymoon because it's going to be tough. Um, it's a very tough inheritance, this one. Um, one of the many differences with 97, although I stress again, public services were dire by 97, um, though not as dire as now. So uh, I suspect he'll get one in the sense that after 13, be 14 years by the election of this uh, single party government, albeit coalition in the first bit, uh, there will be a relief to have a change, but it's how they make use of that space when there is the space to act boldly that will determine whether it's a long honeymoon or one like, say, Ted Heath, who won in June 1970 and was already in deep trouble from which he did not escape by the autumn of 1970. Thatcher was unpopular, but she had various levers to pull that got her into a landslide victory by 83 and again in 87. Uh, thank you, Charlie. Um, James, uh, glad to hear the Edinburgh Fringe shows went well. I'm looking forward to attending at King's Place on the 13th of September. Oh, yeah, see you there, James. Uh, we're going to have a packed fun night. Um, James says, it was a neat insight about the Tory fear factor towards the Lib Dems in the South. Yeah, I mentioned uh, in um, the last podcast that I spoke to a senior Tory, so they're really worried about the Lib Dems gaining quite a lot of seats in that so-called blue wall. I was wondering what your thoughts were regarding the position of the Green Party. While they lack a face familiar as the retiring Caroline Lucas, they do give a sense, as far as I can see, that they're seeking to be a repository for a dissenting left opposition to Starmer's Labour. At the same time, I've read reports about the Green Party making some rural inroads in some Tory areas. Are they becoming a smaller Lib Dem-style force? 
combining leftish urbanites with conservative conservationists? Um, yeah, again, a very interesting question. And the answer is that the next general election will give us an indication. They are not as disciplined, coherent and focused as, say, the Green Party in Germany. But... You just pick up anecdotally people saying, oh, I've just had enough of this, I'm going to vote green kind of thing um, on the left. And maybe you're right about conservative conservationists who will be disillusioned with Sunak now, you know, posing as the motorist friend and polluting rivers and all the rest of it. Um, so, but we'll know quite soon. Uh, but political parties have to have coherence, a clear sense of a boundary you know, where, where where they stand and what membership implies. And, of course, in some senses, the Greens do. And they also need big, articulate figures. And uh, Caroline Lucas going is obviously a big loss. I mean, she, but she had a huge pressure as a kind of leading figure uh, and their only MP. But I think the answer will come become clear at the general election. It is one of the uncertain factors, whether uh, most voters coalesce around Labour to get the Tories out or feel uh, disillusioned with, or some feel disillusioned with the kind of Starmer, uh, kind of Blairite reform plus technology vague agenda that they turn elsewhere. And um, we will know at the time of the election. Uh, thanks, James. Uh, Michael Haskell says, John Redwood mooted that the 1992 Tory victory, this was in uh, the reunion programme about the John Major government and its fall, and his subsequent leadership challenge in 1995 in particular, was important in that it led to John Major promising a referendum with regards to joining the Euro which meant Blair and Brown had to do so as well. And Redwood feels without this, the new Labour government would have taken the country into the euro at the turn of the millennium. Uh, is he right? I think he is partly right, Michael. See, what happened was very interesting. John Major, uh, after a stormy period proposed a referendum on the euro while he was still prime minister against the wishes of Ken Clark and Michael Heseltine, who both knew it would make joining much harder and they wanted to join. Tony Blair and Gordon Brown in opposition um, did not quite know how to respond because in their different ways and at different times, they wanted to join the euro as well, but felt obliged to offer the referendum when Major did. They didn't know, or Blair for sure didn't know, how they would go into the election not pledging a referendum when Major was doing it. So once they pledged it, it basically meant Britain was not going to join the Euro because they were never going to hold one confident they could win. And if you're not confident you win a referendum, you don't hold one. Uh, Cameron thought he was going to win the one on Europe. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think you know, Redwood himself might have overplayed his own hand in this, but I think the decision by Major to offer a referendum and then by Blair and Brown to offer a referendum in response meant that Britain was never going to join the Euro. Uh, although Tony Blair fantasised after Iraq uh, that he would do so. Um, you know, part of his whole Iraq 
thing was he was going to show how strong he was with America, in partnership with America, so that in a Euro referendum, no one could accuse him of being this kind of blindly pro-European, anti-American prime minister. Simon Lockyer says, I'm currently harvesting potatoes, tomatoes and runner beans. Uh, love the Edinburgh podcast. Yeah, on Patreon, uh, they got a recording of the first of the 14 Edinburgh shows. Um, still there, along with a vault of other bonus podcasts. I don't get why the Conservatives would paint Starmer as an elite lawyer from North London. Wouldn't that backfire as Labour can just turn that round and say the billionaire former investment banker Rishi, who isn't connected to the general population? Well, I think, you know, there is going to be a lot about Starmer being a North London uh, lawyer. And in some ways, it's a real shame because I think it limits his freedom to highlight what he did as a lawyer. It was a very impressive record. He did a lot of cases for free, you know, good progressive cases, um, which shows him at his absolute best, really. You know, he wasn't just in to make a ton of money at the law. Um, but he doesn't he doesn't talk that much about himself anyway. But I think one of the reasons he doesn't highlight that is, uh, just, oh, you're a North London liberal lawyer. Um, whether Labour go on about Sunak's wealth, I don't know um, whether they will. Um, I think there's a sense out there that Sunak is rich um, and, and it's not helping him. I think the scale of his wealth is an issue, uh, uh, whether Labour push it or not. Um, yeah, let's just uh, press on with it. God, I've got so many here. Uh, let's, a couple more. Uh, Andrew Kitchen, Starman needs to use a small team of his most articulate performers on the media rounds. McFadden, Kyle, Phillips and Streeting. He and Ed Davey need to sort out their differences about Doris's former seat as a Tory win there will give Sunak much needed momentum. I think Sunak may go early before drubbing in the local elections, maybe April like John Major did in 1992. Well, I kind of think that they, they are some of the media performers, and there are others actually in the shadow cabinet who are pretty good media performers. Yvette Cooper's very good uh, as a media performer, and um, there, are, there are plenty of them. It's, it's, it's a strong shadow cabinet. That in itself is not um, a precondition to victory. There have been a lot of sh strong shadow cabinets that Labour have lost. I looked the other week at the 1992 shadow cabinet. Uh, it was impressive. John Smith, shadow chancellor, Blair and Brown in there, Robin Cook, Jack Straw, Mo Molum, I think. No, no, she was probably not too junior at that point. But it was a formidable uh, shadow cabinet, and um, they lost. But this one is uh, is is good. But the, the key thing, as I say, is their mastery of policy and issues as well as advocating them. But in opposition, you've got to be out there persuading and putting a case, all of them, actually. So, yeah, let's see... Uh, Okay. Yeah. Now, I mentioned we we're going to hear from white van driver Andy, and he's written to say, it's about the ULES issue. Very interesting. I met another van driver, self-implied, on my London rounds on the day ULES expanded, took a deep breath and asked what he thought. And this was his reply. And this is really interesting. 
Bloody great. I got £7,000 scrappage from my old van, which was knackered, and that'll help keep me going. And this is back to Andy. From this and many other similar encounters, I can tell you, ULES is absolutely not the widespread wedge issue the male is desperate to make it. As with many things of which they seem frit, Labour needs to back Khan, back this policy and many others, raise a defiant middle finger to Tory press and its habits, hobbits and give all of us long-suffering supporters some inspiration, hope and some policies worth getting behind. If Starmer can't raise his public game to do this in a real and authentic way, then he should let others like Jess Phillips and Stella Creasy step up and do it for him. They have the priceless knack of connecting with ordinary voters in a positive way, just as Farage and Johnson do negatively. Check Jess out here if you haven't already. There's a link to uh, uh, one of her uh, interviews. Um, uh, he says, folks I know who aren't political junkies love her straight-talking, combative style. Yeah, it's fascinating about the, the ULIS issue. And there was, I think, a real overreaction on the Friday after the Uxbridge by-election. Anyone would have thought Labour had been slaughtered in uh, when they'd just won that Selby seat with a spectacular gain. So... It's really interesting that here is a van driver saying, oh, yeah, this is great with the scrappage scheme. Um, thank you, uh, Andy. Uh, Paul Cooper wonders whether uh, in general elections there's inevitably a very narrow offer made which can exclude some, such as those who feel victims to inequality and falling living standards. Although, actually, there's a huge obsession about living standards. Th th there has to be a wide pitch at an election. So I think it's a mistake. I remember Tony Benn saying, I'm a, Ben was an extraordinary figure uh, and articulate, but he, he misread how you project at elections. He always used to say, uh, the Labour Party will represent our class like the Conservatives represent their class. Well, that excludes huge numbers of voters who don't feel, I, I think Tony Benn was referring to the working class in inverted commas, however, again, vaguely defined. Whereas you have to pitch more widely in order to win an election. That doesn't mean cautious incrementalism, but it does mean the art of persuasion, which is inclusive, rather than sort of implying the rest of you can bugger off, we're going to represent our class. Um, so I think that is the art of uh, winning elections. Uh, Dr. John Hyder-Wilson, it seems to me amidst the various speculation that the 24 election is going to be like 1992 or 1997, that a much more likely recent and plausible comparison has been generally missed, 2010. Going into that election, as now, the governing party had a majority of roughly 70. The main opposition party was way behind with only about 200 seats. Then, as now, the opposition leader was seen as broadly competent but not inspiring. Then, as now, there were serious economic problems. In 2010, Cameron the Conservatives won swathes of seats but finished on 305, 20 short of a majority. Yeah, and John says, see you at King's Place on the 13th of September. Yeah, well, maybe we'll explore some of this more deeply then, uh, uh, John, because you're right, that is an interesting comparison. And I think the difference will be that in those circumstances, Keir Starmer will form a minority Labour government and there won't be a coalition as there was then. Finally, Philip Gilfus, the Cameronites, 
Yeah, uh, uh, Philip, who uh, very kindly came up to uh, Edinburgh to see a couple of the shows. Uh, it's always great meeting the uh, cooperative in Edinburgh. Met lots of the cooperative in Edinburgh. Hope to meet more at King's Place on the 13th. Um, he's wondering about the identity of modern conservatives. The Cameronites were more or less dismissed by May. I don't think there are any Mayites. I think there are maybe 25 Johnsonites in the Conservative Parliamentary Party. So what flag do conservatives operate under now? Well, that's an issue that uh, Rishi Sunak must seek to define when he um, speaks at the party conference. But basically, as I said earlier, he is uh, a return to... Osborne, Cameron, Thatcher style economics at a point. I mean, one of the fascinations with this whole period is I don't think it's ever been in fashion as it was clearly in the early 1980s, uh, Thatcherism. But they have managed to bring it back, even though the evidence suggested it wasn't appropriate. And via Brexit, win a significant majority in 2019. The rest of these elections, they haven't won significant majorities. It really is not the uh, vehicle required for now. I don't think it was in the 80s, but it certainly isn't now, and you could put a case in the 80s. But the demands now for a modern functioning state is the space that... um, well, Keir Starmer would ideally be occupying. Um, but Sunak, I think, will define them as fiscal conservatives, balancing the books, Tories. Um, and his focus will be on inflation and getting that down will address the cost of living. I can kind of hear the speech he will make uh, at the Conservative conference. And if the party was in a kind of vaguely sane state, that would bind a hell of a lot of them together. But Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is a Thatcherite, thinks Starmer's a socialist and uh, relates to Johnson, who was not really a Thatcherite, although he was some of the time, but most of the time he wasn't. That's why he fell out with Sunak. He wanted to spend money, like the Department of Education wanted to help crumbling schools. Sunak wasn't interested in both cases. Anyway, look, we've uh, so much going on. We could go on and on. Uh, But that's it for now. Don't forget, pre-order the book because we're going to be reflecting on the themes and you can have the text and all the rest of it. And so I'll be launching it at King's Place as part of the evening there. But uh, the main focus will be to make sense of this forthcoming political year with the help of all of you. Um, So, yeah, see you there. Have a great week. And we'll get together on the podcast very soon. Thanks a lot. Bye.